About 50 years ago, NASA sent its first mission to orbit the moon with Apollo 8. And it was the first time humans had left the orbit of Earth and then entered the orbit of another celestial body. And if you recall, an icon of the mission is the now famous Earthrise photo, which marked the first time humans ever had the view of the Earth rising above the horizon of the moon. There it is. And uh, NASA scheduled a broadcast from the astronauts on Christmas Eve 1968 when they entered orbit around the moon. And it was to be seen and heard around the world, which became to that point the most watched broadcast ever. And when mission commander Frank Borman asked what they were supposed to say to mark the occasion, he was simply told to say something appropriate. Fortunately, after the astronauts struggled to come up with anything that they found to be appropriate, a woman named Christine Layton, the wife of a friend of a friend, came up with an idea that they liked. And so on the day that they entered the orbit of the moon, on the day that they took that photo, they closed their broadcast with these words. We are now approaching lunar sunrise, and for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the Earth. And they continued, taking turns reading from the first ten verses of Genesis chapter 1. And then finally, Borman closed with, And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place and let the dry land appear and it was so and God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called the seas and God saw that it was good and from the crew of Apollo 8 we close with good night good luck a merry Christmas and God bless all of you all of you on the good earth I'll bet some of you remember that it's a wonderful moment, and I encourage you to look up the video. It's easily accessible if you do a search. But the interesting thing is, no one in mission control knew they were going to do that. And I've heard accounts from members of mission control that said that when that happened, the room fell silent. Now understand, mission control is a very business environment. These are, this is a room full of engineers used to work in long days, under pressure, used to making decisions on which depend human lives. There's not a lot of room for poetry in mission control. And yet they said it didn't matter if you were religious or not, it affected everyone. They said some had tears in their eyes, and I heard one gentleman who freely admitted that he cried. Another said the hair on the back of his neck stood up. And he said the first thought in his mind when they started reading was, how appropriate. Why? Why was that appropriate? Why was that so appropriate? The event in and of itself is a huge event. It's a big deal, to be sure. But what was so special about that moment to stop these engineers in their tracks? 
I may not be able to answer that question for everyone, but I can say why I think it was appropriate and why it continues to give me goosebumps 50 years after the fact. It's significant that there was a new perspective to God's creation, to be sure. But more so, I think it's always appropriate to respond to creation by recognizing the creator. And that's what our psalm for today does, a big part of it. We've been going through the book of Psalms in the last month, and it's a compilation of songs and prayers from Israel's worship. And as we've gone through it, we've looked at key themes that are significant for our spiritual journey. We've looked at themes of trust, both individual and corporate lament. We've looked at repentance and the hope of forgiveness. And today we look at something that's foundational to the book of Psalms and even our very lives, and that's praise. In fact, the title of the book of Psalms in Hebrew translates to praises. Our psalm for today is filled with praise, especially as the author recognizes God's creation. He gives us a lot of fodder for praising God. More so, I think it's significant that the reasons the author gives for praising God are independent of the circumstances in the author's life. Now, there's plenty of psalms that respond to what God is doing in our lives, and we absolutely should. But this psalm teaches us that God is worth praising, and it is appropriate to praise God in response to who he is, regardless of what he is or is not doing in our lives. And it's a psalm full of rich imagery. And the imagery is very much rooted in the culture of the ancient Near East, even to the point of perhaps appropriating images from other creation stories and concepts just to make points about the living God. But even so, they, they do well to make the author's point, even today. And Psalm 104 begins with an encouragement to oneself to praise God. Praise the Lord, my soul. Same way Psalm 103 begins. In fact, they're the two psalms in the psalm book framed with that phrase. It then opens with the most fundamental reason for praise. The author praises God for who God is. We've seen this as the basis for our hope in its many forms. It's the basis that we have to trust God. It's the reason that we can take to him our pain individually and corporately. It's the reason that we can ask him for forgiveness and have hope that he will restore us. And here it is the fundamental reason for praise. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And this statement is the glory of God. It's the author bragging about who God is. 
It's the reason we exist. It's the reason creation exists. For God and God's glory. And all that we are, and all that we do, God is the point. As someone pointed out, in this statement is the glory that he shows us as well as the mystery of his being. The journey of knowing God, the adventure of knowing God, it never ends. Jesus died and rose from the dead that we may know the living God now and in the life to come. And the Psalms continually point to God as the ultimate end. 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. 27.4 says, one thing I ask from the Lord. This only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Essentially, one thing I ask of you, God, your presence, yourself. I was in a Bible study where we looked at that psalm, and somebody put it beautifully. They, the psalm is ascribed to David, and they said, for David, God is his reward. And the psalmist, the authors of the psalms, they continually recognize that nothing beats God. Nothing is better than knowing God. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul, is able to say, in Philippians 3.8, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Strong words from a man who lost a lot because he followed Jesus. And eventually his life Nothing beats knowing the Creator, clothed in splendor and majesty. And the author of our psalm paints a picture of God wrapped in light, making his home upon the waters of the heavens, an image coming right out of the ancient Near Eastern culture. Clouds are his chariot, even as Jesus describes himself writing when he returns. And after marveling at who God is, the psalm then moves on to praise God for God's work, particularly in creation. As it moves, the bulk of it speaks of what God has created. It's marveling at what God has done. And there's a lot of water imagery. And in this culture, water, the sea in particular, was viewed as a force that represented chaos, and disorder. And yet in this psalm, Creator God not only contains it, not only tells it what to do, but He wields it for the good of His creatures. And recognizes His creature, even the curious Leviathan. If you're wondering, there's no agreement as to what that refers to. In fact, some say sometimes it's re it refers to an actual creature, sometimes it might have more metaphorical value. The point is it's always painted as a fearsome sea creature. And yet here it is frolicking. Just another beast made for, for God to enjoy in his creation. And then it recognizes the cosmos. 
the rhythm of time made possible by the sun and the moon, which governs the life of animals and humans alike. And speaks clearly that all of this is a product of God's wisdom. It is made wonderfully, intentionally. And it recognizes that all creation is dependent on God's spirit. The Psalms teach us creation continually testifies to God's glory. Psalm 19.1 says in its opening, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's the truth that our author is recognizing. If you haven't noticed, I love science. This is not the first NASA photo I have showed you, and I realize that. But I love it in large part because it shows me the fingerprints of God in creation. That's a witness we need to take seriously. If we believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then we should look to the heavens and the earth to teach us things about who God is. That means all creation will show us more of who he is. Creation gives us a new level of depth at which we may appreciate God, especially in this day and age. We are privileged. There are wonders that we know that even a hundred years ago we were unaware of. It's one thing to recognize God created the heavens and the earth. It's another thing to jump into the wonders of the galaxies and stars and all the fun phenomena that continue to puzzle scientists like black holes and dark matter. Or maybe go to the small world and look at the machine-like world of the cells that compose us, our very being, that make up even the bigger systems that keep us alive. It all amplifies our understanding of God's glory, God's creativity, God's wisdom. And the most appropriate response is worship. Lord, my God, you are very great. Clothed with splendor and majesty. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom, you made them all. I encourage you to take seriously the witness of creation. Find the fingerprints of your creator in it. You don't have to be a scientist to do that. You don't have to watch Nova. It's okay if you do. It's great to be out in nature, but you don't even have to do that. As someone pointed out to me once, humans are the pinnacle of God's creation. We bear God's image uniquely. And so we can recognize God's work in one another. We can find what God is doing, even now. That's, that's a big part of why we share what God is doing in our lives. That's also why it matters how we treat each other. Because it recognizes the value that God has put in each one of us. And as we do, if we respond to each other and to, what, and to God's creation in love, 
That is worship to God. The psalmist closes showing us what God's work demands. God's being, God's work, demands that we respond, that we praise him with the response of our words and our lives. The psalm closes with an expressed desire to live in accordance with God's reality. Our author says, I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. But may sinners vanish from the earth and the wicked be no more. That last line may seem a little out of place, but it is a holistic desire for things to be as God wants them to be, starting with the life of our author. Because of who God is, because of what God does, God, may I live in a way pleasing to you. May my meditation be pleasing to you. The things I do, the things I think about, the things I say. Our author doesn't just respond with words. Our author responds with his very life. Responding to Jesus, worshiping him, receiving his forgiveness and grace, it demands the response of our lives. If we recognize the God of creation, creator God who made the wonders of the heavens and the earth, including ourselves, and we recognize that we are not our own, what's more, this knowledge of the living God is too good to keep to oneself. The psalm doesn't just end with the author repeating himself. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. The first praise the Lord is to his soul. Praise the Lord, my soul. The second one is kind of lost in our language. It's a second person plural. It's a command. We don't have that formally in English anymore. The closest thing we have is y'all. All y'all, praise the Lord. That's what he's saying. Anyone who can hear me, praise the Lord. He's inviting all who hear him to join him in praising the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. It's that command, praise the Lord. The wonder, the joy of knowing God and living in worshipful relationship with him. It's too good to keep to ourselves. It's too good to just enjoy on our own. That's why we invite others to join us. We do it because knowing God, knowing the creator of all the wonders of the universe in relationship with Jesus Christ is too good a reality to not share. Did I say that right? It is too good a reality not to share. It's a reality we need to share. The reality of Creator God is great enough to silence a room full of hardened engineers with a new view of the world He created and perhaps bring some of them to tears. Do we take time to recognize that reality? Do we take it seriously? Do we respond to it?
we take the time to share that reality with those around us. Knowing Creator God should result in praise and worship. It should be too good a thing to keep to ourselves. Let us respond to Him with the praise of our mouths and the praise of our lives. Let's prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper.